0: Listen up, everybody! On Tuesday, March 19th, 4:15 Eastern Time—that's 1:15 here local in LA—I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs: the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF (ticker TYLD) and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF (ticker MYLD). Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4:15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambridgefunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambridge ETFs are distributed by Alphastar Distributors Inc., member FINRA. FINRA. Welcome, podcast friends. We have a fantastic episode for you today. Last year, we published The Best Investment Writing, Volume 4. We offered authors the opportunity to record an audio version of their chapter to be released as a segment of the podcast, and listeners loved it. This year, we're once again bringing you the entire volume of The Best Investment Writing, Volume 5, in podcast format. You'll hear from some of the most respected money managers and investment researchers from all over the world. Enough from me. Let's get to our guests and let them take over this special episode. Hi. My name is John Pease, and I'm a quantitative researcher on the asset allocation team at GMO. GMO is a global private investment firm founded in 1977, which manages approximately $70 billion. On behalf of Ben Inker, the head of GMO's asset allocation team, I'll be reading a piece we co-authored in late 2020 called Value, If Not Now, When? It is often hard to take your mind off discomfort. The drumbeat of worry can be made louder, though, if your attempt at mental respite involves, as did mine, reading a book called Migraine. No matter how lyrically pain is evoked, or how well-crafted its description, it unsurprisingly still reminds the reader of pain. And the year is 2020, and we are value investors. The performance of value from 2007 to 2019 was, to put it mildly, uninspiring. This was not altogether surprising, considering the run-up that value had prior to that period. We at GMO did warn of the peril of investing in cheap stocks at a time when their valuations relative to the broad market looked to be at a record high. But the mind-numbing pain of holding value anywhere in the world over the last 12 months has been something else entirely. It has shattered the record losses of the factor over any year-long period, tech bubble included. It is time then to repeat our message from last year, though this time more forcefully, no matter where you look, no matter how you slice it, value looks cheap. After a very difficult 2020, US value as GMO defines it, now trades at the fourth percentile of relative valuation on the blend of metrics that we generally use to evaluate the group's attractiveness. You might object that this is a non-standard definition of value. And if cheap stocks were chosen using some other metric, they might look less interesting. To address this concern, we can analyze how attractive the cheapest half of the U.S. looks when built on 11 different metrics, including GMO's proprietary price to scale. No matter how we define cheap stocks, whether on book or free cash flow or forward earnings, they look attractive relative to history. 10 of the 11 definitions of value presented are cheaper than they've been in at least 90% of months since 1971 but the cheap half on price to income, the misfit. The relative valuation of this group looks a little bit less compressed at the 13th percentile, but it bears mention that in the cheapest month for US value of all time, February of 2000, the cheap half based on this one metric was a similar outlier. While Most definitions of value look cheap in relative terms. We often hear concerns about this attractiveness being an artifact of the universe within which we are choosing cheap stocks. If we are simply selecting the cheapest securities within the U.S., for instance, we will today be comparing beaten-down energy companies and yield-starved banks with profitable technology behemoths. These two groups should clearly have a significant pricing discrepancy. To address this, we can use industry classification standards to select the cheapest half of companies within each sector, group, or industry looking at the relative valuations of the cheapest companies in the U.S. when we strip out the class fence. No matter what we do, U.S. value still looks exceptionally cheap. But value being cheap within sectors, groups, and industries doesn't assuage everyone's fears. Some people worry that value is cheap because it is picking small caps, and small caps deserve to trade at a significant discount particularly given the disproportionately hard hit the COVID-19 shock has had on smaller companies. Whether we select value exclusively within large caps or exclusively within small caps, value still looks quite cheap. But perhaps it isn't about size per se. Maybe it's about the ultra-high quality, fang being quite expensive. In the broad universe and in the large cap space, Even if we industry neutralize, this might distort our view given the massive weights that these companies have. To test this, we can exclude the FANGMs from our fishing pool and see whether value looks cheap relative to the ex-FANGM market. It does. There are other specifications we can alter to check whether value's cheapness is truly robust. We can exclude IT, presumably the most expensive sector in the U.S., or we can exclude energy and financials, presumably the least expensive sectors in the region. We can weigh securities differently, avoiding full cap weighting where large companies are likely to drive results. We can pick value only within the high quality or the junky sections of the market. Without exception, value, at least from a historical perspective, remains exceptionally cheap. Though history is often a good guide, it's important to recognize that markets can and have changed. Many of the high-flying companies of today are capital light and R&D heavy a combination that with traditional accounting can lead to significant misreads of who is cheap and who is not. If this were a substantial problem, then we should see that value looks particularly cheap within industries where there is a lot of intangible investment, but not in industries where intangibility is low. This does not seem to be the case. The new investment mix of companies is not the only change we have seen in markets. Over the past 20 years, antitrust agencies have been significantly less active at the same time that advances in technology have brought about increasing returns to scale in industries where there previously were none. These two forces, sometimes separately and frequently in unison, have eroded competition and enabled the rise of so-called superstar firms, extraordinarily profitable, highly scalable oligopolistic businesses. The corollary to industry superstars is that other companies within the same industries see their market share dwindle and their profitability crash, leading to compressed valuations for good reason. But when we look at the relationship between profit concentration, the gap between the profitability of the largest four companies within an industry and all their smaller competitors, and the attractiveness of cheap companies within industries, we again see no relationship. In fact, Value looks cheaper in more competitive industries. This doesn't mean that value traps within industries with a dominant company don't exist, but it does mean that low-cost companies abound even where competition is still alive and well. It's clear that value is very cheap in relative space, and that cheap portfolios can be formed even when we avoid industries where traditional accounting does a poor job or where monopolies are wiping out the competition. This is not enough to want to invest in value, however, if we don't believe that valuations have a reason to rise. In that case, we need to understand whether absent valuation changes, that is, even if value were to remain as cheap as it is today, we should expect the factor to outperform. It turns out that we should. We can see this by breaking out value's relative returns into four pieces. It's fundamental undergrowth to the market. It's yield advantage due to being cheap. The profits from selling holdings that have become expensive and replacing them with cheaper securities, which we call rebalancing, and changes in relative valuations. Given that valuations cannot trend in either direction forever, it is the first three growth, yield, and rebalancing that determine whether value's structural prospects are positive or negative. And both before and after 2006, when we put those three together, we see value outperforming the market. We do have reason to believe that valuations will provide a tailwind to value, however. After all, low relative valuations for cheap stocks have generally begotten higher relative valuations in the future. Though this is congruent with investors demanding a premium for holding stocks perceived to be risky, it is also the kind of phenomena we have come to expect from watching the cycle of a style performing poorly, becoming unloved, and then suddenly surprising on the upside as investors discover that their expectations, for one reason or another, were little or a lot too low. Though our emphasis up to now has been on value within the U.S., it is important to note that internationally, both in developed and emerging markets, value also looks like a remarkable bargain. In many cases, in fact, we have never seen cheap stocks looking cheaper than they do today. So if the undergrowth of U.S. value worries you too much, or if the quality of European value is not to your liking, or if you deem real rates in the developed world to be too low for value to win, we believe opportunities still abound to allocate to cheap companies at remarkably cheap levels elsewhere. If value stocks are extremely cheap versus the market, it is necessarily the case that growth stocks are very expensive. In absolute terms, that is even more true, given that the overall market is trading at elevated valuations relative to history. In fact, on a price-to-sales basis, growth stocks are even more expensive than they were in 2000. And while they are not quite as extreme on a PE basis, they are certainly far more expensive than any time before or since. At what point do you call that a bubble? While growth stocks and the market as a whole have been quite expensive for several years now, Jeremy Grantham has frequently been at pains to remind us that there is more to an investment bubble than elevated valuations. According to him, what the true investment bubbles have in common is a mania on the part of market participants and a sense that if people would only jump on board, everybody ought to be rich. A bull market that goes on and on without capturing the public imagination probably isn't a bubble. A poor investment on a forward-looking basis, perhaps, but not a bubble. Until this year, the post-global financial crisis full market has been notable for how boring it had been. Certainly, the term fangs became well-known to everyone in the investment world, and many people outside of it. But compared to the frenzy for internet stocks in the late 1990s, or indeed for flipping condos in the mid-2000s, there just didn't seem to be the type of mania that a bubble requires. And then 2020 happened. Perhaps it was the lockdown that left people with plenty of time on their hands and no sports to bet on, but this year has seen more crazy activity in the stock market than anything we have seen since 2000. Whether it was Hertz stock rising tenfold in the spring as a high beta recovery play, despite the fact that the company was bankrupt and shareholders wouldn't have benefited from a recovery even if it happened, or Kodak stock rising 30-fold after announcing it was going to start making chemicals to enable the production of COVID-19 treatments. Very odd and speculative things have been going on. As a more traditionally growthy example, Tesla has risen some 800% since the fall of 2019, on the back of 17% growth in the vehicle sold. It now has a greater market cap, than the sum of all other U.S. automakers, all the European automakers, and all the Korean automakers with Honda, Mazda, and Nissan thrown in for good measure. That collection of companies sold approximately 100 times as many cars as Tesla did in 2019. But Tesla isn't the craziest thing that happened this year, and that is true even if we restrict ourselves to looking only at electric vehicle companies named after Nikola Tesla. This spring, a would-be Tesla called Nikola went public via a reverse merger with the SPAC at a valuation of $3 billion. In the 2020 EV frenzy, it rose tenfold to a market cap of about $30 billion. This company is a rare bird in the stock market, a pre-revenue manufacturing company. In fact, Nikola is not only pre-revenue, having never sold any vehicles it has produced, it has also never produced a vehicle. Further, it has not even built the factory in which it aspires to build the trucks that it has yet to sell. This summer, a report came out detailing allegations that almost all of the claims of Nikola's Elon Musk wannabe founder over the few years of its existence were lies. That founder, Trevor Milton, was forced to resign, and the company has yet to meaningfully refute any of the claims made in the report. The stock duly fell, but even after information came out showing that pretty much everything the company has claimed to accomplish in its history was a lie, it still has a market cap more than three times its value at its public debut less than a year ago, a valuation that was presumably predicated on the company's claims actually being true. With a combination of some of the highest valuations ever seen and clear corresponding manic investor behavior, it seems clear to us that growth stocks are indeed in a bubble. But what about the catalyst? The question of what will drive mean reversion for value is the most common question we get from clients today, for understandable reasons. Value has been losing for a long time, and valuation itself hasn't been able to arrest the underperformance. Hearing us say we don't know what the catalyst will be is not that reassuring, even if it has the benefit of being true. That's not to say we don't have any ideas. A return to more normal economic times could certainly be a catalyst. And indeed, the news of strong results from vaccine candidates has led to strong returns for value for at least a day or two at a time. This market response certainly makes sense. The average value stock relies more on the kind of face-to-face activity that the pandemic has made difficult than is the case for the average growth stock. If it is indeed the case that widespread vaccination allows the world to come back to something like normal by the end of 2021, it seems very likely to be a continuing net positive for value. Given the scale of the discount at which value stocks are trading, the move from that alone could be quite large. A potential further catalyst in that vein would be interest rates rising above today's rock-bottom levels. Even a relatively small upward move would be positive for sectors such as financials, which are overwhelmingly value stocks. If rising inflation were to cause the interest rate move to be a sizable one, it would be difficult to believe that value as a whole would not outperform quite strongly. None of these events strike us as implausible, although we think the likelihood of an eventual normalization of the economy is close to certain, whereas rising inflation rates are merely a possibility. But our belief in value from here is not driven by a belief in any of these potential catalysts per se. That is partially because we don't think we are particularly good macroeconomic forecasters, but mostly because even in hindsight, the catalysts for market turns are often obscure. The cause of the 1929 and 1987 market crashes, the downfall of the Japanese equity market in 1989, and the bursting of the tech, media, and telecom bubble of 2000 aren't particularly obvious even decades after they occurred. And even if you knew What the economic catalyst for the turn was going to be, determining when you would want to take the leap into value would be far from clear. At times, the market looks ahead to the future state of the economy. At other times, it doesn't even seem to pay much attention to what is going on in the present, let alone the future. Future financial historians may indeed declare that the release of the vaccine trial data in November 2020 marked the start of the great value rally of the 2020s. On the other hand, they may not. We are far more confident that something will cause the turn than any one thing in particular will. Given the extreme level of the opportunity and value today, we consider that the risk of staying on the sideline until the turn is obvious is a bigger risk than entering into the trade before we are 100% sure the bottom is in. It has truly been a hellish time for value. After years of disappointing investors, Value just experienced its worst 12-month performance in history. The long history of value as a style shows that its best times are more or less always preceded by pain. As value investors who have been suffering for it for over a decade, we can certainly attest that we have experienced enough pain to justify a wonderful run for value stocks. But you don't have to simply take it on faith that value is well set up for the better times ahead. The relative valuations of these stocks around the world are some of the cheapest we have ever seen, and the decomposition of the sources of value's returned since it peaked in 2006 shows that if valuations were to merely be stable at today's levels and the underlying fundamentals for value and growth were the same as they have been over the last 14 years, value would beat the market by a decent margin. Of course, we believe relative valuations will not merely be stable from here, But will rise back toward their historical normal levels. Whether that rise is driven by absolute gains for value stocks in the next few years or avoidance of losses from the bursting of the growth bubble is hard to say. Over the next five to ten years, most value stocks around the world seem to us to be priced to give a decent real return, although that is more questionable for U.S. large-cap value stocks where absolute valuations are higher. For our part, We believe that the combination of a wonderful relative opportunity for value and worrying absolute valuations for stock markets suggests that now is the right time to exploit this value opportunity in a long, short framework. And that is the topic of how to profit from a growth bubble, a primer on our equity dislocation product.